0: The future of runoff contests in Georgia hang in the balance. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein,
1: And I'm Patricia Murphy. And we are two of the political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome. And be sure to follow us on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And be sure to rate us and review us while you're there because it really helps us grow the show.
0: Patricia, I feel like we've been seeing a lot of each other because even though this is only the second podcast that we played this week, this is our like sixth that we've taped this week. (laughs) So it feels like we've been talking to each other an awful lot lately, but all for a good reason.
1: It's so true. There was some commercial in the 80s um, and the tagline was too much is never enough. And I feel the same way about (laughs) the Politically Georgia podcast.
0: And our devoted audience, I got to say, and we can talk about this a little later, but I went to a lead Atlanta group full of young leaders, of future leaders and current leaders of the city of Atlanta, and I just could barely take a step without hearing from another listener. So it's very exciting to see so many people who are so passionate and devoted to this podcast. Well, coming up on today's episode, we're going to talk about how election law changes are going to be addressed in the Georgia legislature, what Stacey Abrams is saying about the 2022 election and her political future. We're going to answer a bunch of questions from the listener mailbag, and Patricia and I have our who's up and who's down for the week. This is politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Okay, Patricia, what is supposed to be a somewhat quiet week for politics? Of course, there is no lull in Georgia politics, even right before the holiday break. But this development we're going to talk about might be one of the biggest debates of the upcoming legislative session. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger made a splash a couple days ago when he supported doing away with the runoffs, though he didn't lobby for any one alternatives. Instead, he kind of hinted at several paths that lawmakers can take. They can go to a ranked choice system where voters can pick their top candidates and avoid another round of voting. They can lower the threshold, lawmakers can, to about 45%, which um, back in 2020 would have meant David Perdue would have won over John Ossoff. But of course, in this last round of voting, it would have meant that Raphael Warnock would have beat Herschel Walker because he out him. He didn't get to the 50% threshold, but out-polled him. Uh, lawmakers can try to enhance the current system by perhaps adding another week to the four week runoff and ensuring more early voting, or they can do absolutely nothing. It's a really prickly question, but Raffensberger became the highest ranking official in Georgia to say lawmakers should do anything they can to make it so there's not a runoff system in Georgia.
1: Yeah, I think that when we were all looking at the lines in that week of early voting that were one hour, two hours, and that was after people had already voted in the general election, and there was so much conversation about SB 202 shortening the early voting runoff period from 17 days to five. And uh, should it be longer? Should it be shorter? I think many, many people knew We've got to do something about this runoff system. Georgia is the extreme outlier in the country in this situation. We're the only state outside of Louisiana that has runoffs following general elections and their general election is a jungle primary. So it almost requires a runoff in that case. So Georgia is really on an island by itself. There's a reason that for the last two years, you know, quote, everything's come down to Georgia. It's because we're the only state that cannot get the votes counted for our Senate elections. Um, We have to do it twice. And with all of the other examples out there around the country that are working very successfully, I think that there are a whole lot of other options that we can choose from. I talked to Dr. Kerwin Swint at Kennesaw State University this week, who has actually done a lot of recent research into the runoffs here in Georgia with a team of researchers at KSU. And the title of their report was An Unnecessary Burden, meaning runoffs for general elections they found are unnecessary and a burden. And he said, we really, frankly, at the end of the day, don't even need runoffs. If you think about it, it's really always going to come down to a Democrat or a Republican and a Libertarian. How different is that from a runoff? Uh, and are you skewing the results? You always have fewer people. You're always, a, always in a sense, disenfranchising people who did vote the first time around, but either don't have the time, the inclination, the motivation to get out and vote for a second time. Why should the bar be so high to make a choice in the statewide race here in this state.
0: You know, Patricia, th- this, that's exactly right. And this strikes me as one of those issues that, that cuts across party lines. Because look, we, we know many Republicans who say they can't stomach the thought that a statewide candidate can win without securing a majority of the vote. But there are other Republicans who see this as a costly burden on local officials, just as you mentioned. There are some Democrats who point to the long racist and segregation is of the runoff system, which was devised decades ago to basically ensure that a white candidate would win these races without uh, splitting the ticket. And then there are other Democrats who are skeptical of the sudden push by Republicans to change this. And after Democrats suddenly start winning a lot of these runoff races, Uh, one of the best responses I got today was a candidate who's running in a lower profile runoff um, more than a decade ago, who said that when that candidate went in to vote on a on the runoff day, a lady looked at the driver's license, looked at the candidate, looked back at the driver's license, then looked back up and says, you're the guy. <laughs> 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 you're the reason we're here, because only a scant number of people actually voted in that runoff. Of course, that was a different time. In the past couple runoffs, we, we have had no problem getting a large turnout, no, of course, nothing reproaching. Um, the midterm turnout or the presidential election turnout, but still millions of people voted because of the high stakes. Uh, But at the same time, there's this growing crescendo, this growing call for something to be done. My hunch is that lawmakers will kind of keep the status quo. They might enhance the status quo. I don't think they're going to get, get rid of the system, but that's just a hunch. I know it's such a fraught debate. And I know that every time election law is brought up, It potentially comes with a whole can of worms by just reopening that code section and making other changes um, that could be really polarizing.
1: Yeah. And, you know, whenever lawmakers go in and change noodle with or goof around with election laws, depending on who's uh, which side of the street you're on, they are always, always going to calculate what does this mean for me? what does this mean for my party? You know, Are we breaking into jail? Are we making it harder for ourselves to win under X scenario or Y scenario? And I think in the past it was very clear that there was an effort, uh, particularly with runoffs, to make it easier for Democrats in particular to maintain control of the state while they could. And um, then you fast forward and then the Republicans go in and change it. And that was a clear effort to also maintain control while they could. It is just the nature of a political body setting the rules for their own elections. But you really also have to think about the burden on those states and what that looks like specifically. $75 million for states to put on the last statewide election runoffs in 2021 Fast forward, uh, less than two years later, about $80 million for counties to put on those runoffs again. Um, That means full staffing. And that means an entire process of an election night and counting, potentially recounting, auditing, all of this necessarily happening between November and the new year over Thanksgiving and possibly Christmas. I mean, these are Real people having to do this every single time. It just absolutely sucks the life out of those counties. It is so arduous. They're happy to do it once. Listen, they're happy to do it twice, but it's very hard. It's very expensive. And is it necessary? Is it worth the expense to the counties? Is it worth the effort to the state to oversee it? And are we getting a really meaningful result at the end of the day when you have fewer voters in the runoff than you had in the general election that happened in the first place?
0: Then there's the counterpoint to that. And I'm going to read a text that both of us got from Congressman, former Congressman John Barrow, who gave us permission to quote him. He, of course, not only was a former congressman, but he also ran for Secretary of State four years ago and lost in a runoff after that midterm election to Republican Brad Raffensberger. This is what John Barrows said, and I'm, I'm, I'm shortening a little bit, but he said, Republican calls to the runoff, we should all smell a rat. So long as that advantage, that historic advantage, went to Republicans, you could expect them to want to hold on to runoffs. But as soon as that advantage shifts to Democrats, expect them to abandon runoffs which is just what we are seeing. And Patricia John Barrow says that's why Republicans, or at least we're seeing some Republicans embrace ranked choice voting. In Barrow's words, he feels like this is perfect for the conservatives because they get the second choice votes from libertarians without having to get them back to the polls again. That's why this has been such a divisive debate.
1: Yeah. So ranked choice voting is absolutely gaining popularity, especially with people who deal with elections Uh, very, very frequently and understand the ins and outs of elections, um, sort of the nitty gritty of the mechanics of elections. They feel like it really gives you the cleanest way to get to a result a second time around, third time around. Um, Maine does ranked choice voting. Alaska does ranked choice voting. New York City just used ranked choice voting in the mayor's race. I think the problem with ranked choice voting at this moment in where we are, even as a country, is that there are a lot of people who are skeptical of voting already. And particularly here in Georgia, ranked choice voting takes so long just to explain to people, and then it is then it takes obviously additional time to get to um, the retabulations and that delay. You have to think uh, particularly because it's done by the machine, the same machine that counted the first time, will count it a second time, count it a third time. I worry that that, with a skeptical electorate, introducing a complicated process is a little bit asking for trouble. That is just my own personal opinion. But people who know a lot about ranked choice voting seem to really like it. And what it means if people are not familiar with ranked choice voting, voters would be given a ballot with every candidate's name on the list, you would rank your first choice. If that in your mind, hypothetically, if that person didn't win, you would choose your second choice, choose your third choice. Since we're talking about general elections, it would probably be just three people um, here in Georgia, unless some independent miraculously qualified for the ballot. So then if your first choice doesn't get through to the 50% mark, your first choice then goes to the second choice, second choice then goes to the third choice. They're sort of like all retabulated Obviously the difficulty of explaining it is sort of an inherent problem of ranked choice voting. But again, people who know about it really seem to love it, uh, but it would require and and Raffensberger and Gabe Sterling have both said this. it would require an immense amount of voter education in order to start to think that ranked choice voting is feasible here in Georgia. It was among the list of options that Raffensberger said he plans to give to the legislature. So you know it'll certainly be part of the conversation going forward.
0: So Patricia Wallow, on the topic of talking about voting rights, let's talk about Stacey Abrams, because, of course, it was as a national voting rights advocate that she kind of burst onto the scene, running for governor in 2018 and losing and running for governor again in 2022 and losing. During the runoff, she was very quiet. We didn't see her play any public visible role in Senator Warnock's runoff victory. I don't think Senator Warnock's campaign was was upset about that, just as they kept Joe Biden at arm's length. I think they also wanted to keep Stacey Abrams are arm's length. They had their strategy. They had their approach. They wanted to stick to it. But Stacey Abrams has recently broken her silence. We heard from her top aide, Lauren Grow Wargo, with that 52-part tweet the day after uh, Senator Warnock's runoff victory. Now we're hearing from Stacey Abrams herself in an appearance on Good Morning America 3.
1: We have to remember, it's been 20 plus years of Republican domination in 2020, 2021, we started to make that shift. It didn't happen overnight, and it's not going to happen overnight, but our job is to continue to build within the coalition of voters that we have, not only a sense of possibility, but using Reverend Warnock, Senator Warnock, as an example, a sense of opportunity and achievement.
0: A lot of folks on Warnock's campaign we're hearing from who are a little bit grumbling about, uh, you know, her continuing to bring up Senator Warnock and his victory. She was also asked about her own political future.
1: I may run again, but I've always said that it's not about the title, it's about the work. And that's why I was so proud to help Rafael get elected. It's why I was so excited to work with candidates up and down the ballot. It's why I've been doing this for more than a decade. I don't know what's next for me in the political realm, but I do know that in the policy space, my job is to keep talking about issues.
0: And that's the part that really triggered a lot of the grumbling. Look, we can parse her words. You know, she did not play any visible role, public role in the runoff campaign, but certainly... Uh, as Democrats, including some of Warnock's top allies, will always say, is that she helped build the infrastructure to get Democrats to the place where in 2018 and 2020 they competed and built this and helped, you know, propel the momentum for the 2020 victory, even if she didn't play an active role in Senator Warnock's runoff victory. Um, That's not really for us to, to go deep into. The Democrats can have that debate. But, Patricia, there is going to be this sort of effort... By Stacey Abrams to put a different sort of sheen on her 2022 loss. After she came close to beating Kemp in 2018, she loses in 2022 by a much bigger margin, almost eight points. And now we're not sure what she's going to do next in the public realm. In the if she's going to run for office again, like like she just you know didn't close the door on. But we know she's already working on several other projects. She has a children's book that she was promoting on that show. She also plans to produce a music documentary for Discovery Plus with the singer and actress Selena Gomez. I'm sure there's other things that we're, we'll soon hear about um, because she was doing many of these things, writing books and, and producing documentaries and films, and um, even before she ran uh, for in this rematch for Office in 2022.
1: Yes, and, you know, I hate to see the Abrams campaign Speaking up at this point, I think this is a conversation that other Democrats should be making for them rather than Abrams and her campaign making this point themselves. Um, oh, we helped you get elected. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear that. Um, they know that Stacey Abrams made Georgia Democrats competitive because Georgia Democrats were perceived as being extremely competitive after the 2018 race when she did come so close to Brian Kemp. That is the only reason Democrats spent a dime in 2020, was because they thought to themselves, wow, look, this margin is really narrowing. Let's see if we can get it closer. Let's see if we could actually win. And so she gets so much of that credit. But when you take credit for yourself, you only get about half as much credit as you think you deserve. When somebody else tries to give you credit, it's usually twice as much as you might deserve. So there's just sort of a, a messaging component here. That's just a little bit ham handed. And hopefully this will not damage anybody's, you know, any long term legacy here in the state because what Abrams did here for Democrats was so real, and so important. But other people should be saying that instead of her. It's just not a great message. Um, However, now let's also talk about what Stacey Abrams is going to do next. Um, Will she run again? It's very hard to imagine her running statewide here in Georgia. I think this was her moment. More than $100 million. Every Democrat in America cheering for her. No presidential campaign to take the control away from her and her campaign right now. Sometimes presidential campaigns just overwhelm what's happening in your own race. If you're running Um, an
0: election year, yeah.
1: Yeah, she had an absolutely top-tier ticket running with her. This is about as good as it gets. However, she lost by eight points, and that is really hard to go back to donors with and say, Hey... I know I lost my eight points last time. I know I it's my third time. You know, that's not really feasible right now. I think she needs some sort of a third act if there's a thought that she would run statewide again. Now, with that said, anybody can run for president. I think that Marianne Williamson proved that last time around in 2020 for the Republicans. Um, Or maybe that was 2016. Um, Literally, anybody can run for president and get a decent amount of traction if you've got a message and an issue, which Stacey Abrams certainly has. Is she running for president? We certainly don't know that. But what she is is... Um, Greg, I don't know if you listen to as many podcasts from female business founders as I do, (laughs) but there is a term called multi-hyphenate, which is a very hot term these days for people who are, you know, singer, songwriter, actress, producer, dog walker, uh, governor, you know, anybody who has like 10 jobs at once. It's always felt like that. Stacey Abrams is such a frenetic worker and producer. She's always doing, she always was in the legislature, a lawyer, running fair fight, starting, you know, running new Georgia project blah, blah blah blah. So now at this point she is a legitimate producer. She had a huge documentary with Amazon Films, Amazon Studios about a year and a half ago, I guess. Um, Now she's back doing this documentary with Selena Gomez. That's through her own production company called Sageworks. And, you know, guess what? Georgia is a huge film state, although I think, you know, certainly Democrats I know in California had been seeing quite a bit of Abrams out in California as well doing kind of entertainment deals and also doing fundraising. So she's got that. She has um, the two businesses that she co-founded. One of them is called The Family Room. The other is now action networks. And I think it's kind of a fintech situation. She has a lot of irons in the fire. She has her children's book. It certainly feels like there's going to be another Selena Montgomery installment coming sometime soon. You know, Abrams will not be, it doesn't feel like she's taking a year off to travel the globe. You know, she's just a a frenetic worker and producer. Uh, Democrats will want her in this space. Um, There's a huge audience for what she's selling. I just don't know if it's Georgia voters.
0: The multi-hyphenate Candidate for for governor, your your podcast choices are much more highbrow than mine, which are usually yes, UJ football, and Braves baseball. So, but I do listen to a lot of history of podcasts. Why
1: do as I well. listen to those? I certainly am never going to start a business. I don't know. I just think they're so interesting. It's a nice palate cleanser after politically Georgia. No offense.
0: No, I'm not offended at all. Okay, let's take on that note. Let's take a quick break. This is politically Georgia from the AJC. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Your host, Greg Bluestein, with your other host, Patricia Murphy. We're not only your hosts for this podcast, but we're also two of the authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe at slash podcasts. And your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents subscribe at ajc.com slash podcast so you always know what's really going on. And now we're off to perhaps our favorite, no, not perhaps, to definitely our favorite segment <laughs> of any week. Because not only does it mean the week's almost over, but it means we get to hear directly from our listeners. It's the Politically Georgia Podcast Hotline. Uh, You can also join our community by calling 770-810-5297. That's 770-810-5297. We'll play it back, answer your question right here on the podcast, and rest assured, producer Shane B and his dedicated legions of news associates who are just begging for their Christmas bonuses. And I don't know if you're going to give it to them, Shane, but they're ready.
2: Well, you know... They're just too busy. They're answering so many calls. I don't know if I can interrupt their hard work to say, here's your Christmas bonus. But you know what is exciting this week? Not only does the listener mailbag have questions from callers, but our listener mailbag is actually a mailbag. We had emails and letters written to the Politically Georgia podcast, so we're going to include them today.
0: We love that. And feel free to email us, reach out to us on social media, text us if you have our cell phones, all that good stuff. Because in the new year, I don't give away anything too much. But in the new year, we're looking to expand the show maybe with uh, separate editions just of Listener Mailbags.
2: Which would be a lot of fun. So uh, let's begin the fun. Let's begin the fun with a phone call. We'll start off with Josh, who has a question about making changes to Georgia's primary date. Hey, Greg and Patricia. I've been seeing a lot of news about President Biden's proposed changes to the presidential nominating order with Georgia as one of the first four states in the presidential nominating process. Personally, uh, I like this idea because it makes Georgia uh, more important in the presidential nominating process, and also it, it acknowledges our status as a battleground state where a presidential candidate needs to be able to win a primary here to appeal to general election voters. But is there any appetite in the Georgia General controlled by Republicans to potentially change the primary date? Is it something that could happen before 2024? Um, Or do either party even need to change state law, or can a party um, hold their primary independent of when our current primaries are?
0: Great question, Josh. Um, It it does require legislative change in order to to move up or move back our primary date. Um, Legislative leaders, as well as Governor Kemp, has been pretty quiet on this so far. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who doesn't have the final say in this, has said basically... He's open to the idea, but you, what you don't want is, you, basically you want the primaries to be on the same dates, the Republican and Democratic primaries, so you don't overtax the, uh, the election workers, you don't make put an additional burden on county elections officials, and you don't want to lose any delegates, because you can get penalized delegates for moving up or moving back your, your primary date without uh, the, the national parties uh, uh, in okay. But here's why I think this is going to happen. It's because this is not only a benefit for Democrats, it's also perhaps, at least in this election cycle, an even bigger benefit for Republicans. You know, if if Joe Biden does run for re-election, you know, it's still going to be an important vote for Democrats, of course. Um, And we don't know who might line up against Joe Biden, if anyone credible. But for Republicans, we do know they'll be wide open. And so Governor Kemp, other state Republican leaders, they could play this outsized role in helping to influence the decision, maybe giving an endorsement, helping to line up support. And they'll also want Republican voters to play an outsized role by making Georgia, which we already know is gonna be a big battleground state in 2024, having Georgia Republican voters help shape the field. And it could be very important for someone like Mike Pence or Chris Christie or someone running in the non-Trump lane Because we already know that in Georgia, Republicans have soured on former President Trump more than some other states because of Trump's efforts to overturn our election and to oust Republican officials like Brian Kemp and Chris Carr and Brad Raffensperger.
1: Yeah, and I think um, it's so hard from Georgia to understand what a big difference it makes for a state to go early in the presidential nominating process. So before I worked for the AJC, I worked for national publications covering national campaigns, and I cannot tell you how much time I have spent in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina um, as a part of that job. I... One time I accidentally went to Sioux Falls, South Dakota instead of Sioux City, Iowa. Um, oh, but no. I spent a lot of time in Iowa, a lot of time in Des Moines, a lot of time in Ankeny, a lot of time, a lot of time in that state. And that's all because Iowa goes so early in the process right now. You want to talk to those voters Meet those elected officials, get to know the state, and get ready for uh, covering that caucus or primary. So um, it makes a huge difference. It also makes a difference to the leaders in the state. So, in these early presidential uh, nominating states, especially Iowa and New Hampshire, I mean, the tiniest endorsement from a third rate city or town um, is going to be touted very loudly, even by leading presidential contenders, um, state House members. become hot commodities. They are really getting wined and dined and wooed by these very famous national profile leaders of their own parties. It is incredibly intoxicating, to be honest with you. So on that level, Georgians would be crazy not to do it. The legislature would because they would have their phones ringing off the hook. Yep. Um, and I think they might even enjoy it. And then it really doesn't make any sense for especially a Democratic uh, primary for Iowa, New Hampshire to play such an outsized role in choosing uh, the nominees or even winnowing the field, it's helpful that those are less expensive media markets. So Georgia would have to deal with that. Um, But Georgia is just really so representative of not just the current Democratic electorate, but I think the future Democratic and the future Republican electorate, you know, diverse, younger, mix of uh, different political positions that sort of has everything for everyone. And so I think both parties will find
0: it attractive to move Georgia further up. So before we get to the next question, when did you realize you booked the wrong city for your flight? Were you just touching down in Sioux Falls? No, excuse me. I
1: drove there. (laughs) I drove there.
0: What? Did you not see the warning signs as you were like crossing into I I don't know, Minnesota crossed, or something?
1: I, l- I crossed <laughs> the, the state line into South Dakota. I'm <laughs> like, something has gone terribly wrong. I'm like, does this road loop around? Like, does it send me back to Iowa? What am I doing here? And the funniest thing is there was an NBC News reporter who did the exact same thing. And we both oh, saw wow. each other. I'm like, oh my God, we totally just did that.
0: Yeah, I'm so looking we, at the map right now. because it's, it's not uh, I was Plus, thinking you'd have to go through Minnesota, but no, it's, it's, it's actually, yeah, it looks like it's a good two hour drive from Sioux city. <laughs> oh yeah. It's
1: two, And it was, t- let me tell you, it's four hours from Des Moines where I started 20. the day, but you know, it's okay. It was all, it's so exciting too. It's like an episode of West Wing. So that would be the only downside of Georgia. They've never filmed an episode of West Wing here, but maybe they could, maybe Stacey Abrams could do a reboot.
0: I do really, really <laughs> enjoy going. I, I really, I mean, I'm not saying this facetiously i really do enjoy going to iowa i I didn't go to sioux falls i did go to sioux (laughs) city with with uh with our the great jamie dupree in 2016 in 2020 i was on the other side of the state for the most time i was in i was in des moines plenty but i went to davenport with mayor bottoms i went to cedar rapids with a number of elected officials i think i watched the super bowl at one of the campaign parties in des moines so it's it's a real treat but it doesn't look like we'll be going there this cycle okay shaney b what's our next question Next question
2: is an email from Ivan in Athens. And he writes, why would Governor Kemp taint himself with Walker after he decisively won this reelection? It seems like there is not a lot of political upside for him. In fact, he writes, to my mind, it seems that would have served to bolster Trump should Walker have won.
1: So I think that, Brian Kemp, there was a big upside for him in the runoff. By that time, Herschel Walker's brand was really so baked. Um, there really wasn't much that Kemp was going to do to, you know, associate or deassociate himself at that point. It really was perceived as a team effort for Republicans to get Herschel Walker across the finish line. Um, the Kemp Camp campaign actually offered to campaign with Herschel Walker before the general election. And the Walker team turned them down and say they made the offer again. Would you like us to campaign with you? They did a single event. They weren't, you know, barnstorming the state together. But I think that it had a lot more to do with Brian Kemp than it did with Herschel Walker. It had a lot more to do with Brian Kemp signaling to fellow Republicans, I'm a team player. I am willing to help any Republican get elected uh, to get this Senate seat. I think he did that. He did a few other things. He also signed his election infrastructure over to uh, Senator Mitch McConnell's outside group. So they were able to have that really big and impressive ground game that the Kemp campaign had built. But by that point, I think this campaign was really headed in the direction that it was going. I think most people already knew that, but it was a way for Brian Kemp to, um, again, uh, you know, be a team player, but it didn't feel like it was going to make or break his own political career Mm -hmm. because he had already secured his own future with his own reelection.
0: That's a good point. Patricia Kemp didn't didn't do the bare minimum. I mean, he 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 did a few steps above the bare minimum. He had that one campaign event with Herschel Walker. He signed over his grassroots team, probably for a pretty penny, but he still let his grassroots team get out there and work on Herschel Walker's behalf. And he also cut all sorts of ads and mailers that were really all over the airwaves the last couple of weeks of of the runoff. But at the same time, he didn't put every ounce of his energy into this. He wasn't out there like Lindsey Graham at a number of stops. He only had that one campaign event. He was not with Herschel Walker at his, at his Tuesday night runoff victory party. He was not with Herschel Walker at his election eve bash at the Governor's Gum Club up in Kennesaw. Um, he played a role, but really what this does, and I think I, I don't see any drawback for Kemp doing this personally because we all know that had Herschel Walker lost like he did, but Governor Kemp was sidelined doing that then a lot of the blame would now be on Governor Kemp. You'd hear from uh, maybe not Georgia voices, but national voices saying, why didn't Governor Kemp... Kemp was the reason why all, the, he, he was, all these split-ticket voters voted for Kemp and Warnock. What if Governor Kemp had come out? What could have the electorate been like? He would have been blamed. And you don't, you're not seeing any any prominent voices blame Kemp at all right now. And frankly, you're not seeing any prominent voices say that herschel walker's loss is kemp's loss so he he kind of navigated that line between doing enough to help herschel to insulate himself but also not completely putting his all his newfound political capital on the line for herschel walker
1: yeah a hundred percent the group that herschel walker needed and everybody knew this this was public information (laughs) He needed those Kemp-Warnock voters or the voters who went out for Brian Kemp and left the Senate race blank or went out for Brian Kemp and then voted for the Libertarian. So he needed some portion of that 200,000 voters to come back out for him. And Brian Kemp was the best spokesperson for that. But then listen really carefully to what Brian Kemp said when he was campaigning for Herschel Walker or when he was cutting ads for Herschel Walker. He was not saying, as many Republican uh, surrogates did, he wasn't saying... These are all lies. They're just trying to destroy Herschel Walker. No, he wasn't saying that. He was saying, I need a Republican partner in the Senate. This would put the brakes on the Biden administration. It would be better for the economy to have a Republican Senate. Herschel Walker is one step closer to a Republican Senate. And so always the disciplined messenger Um that's what Kemp was doing. He did not veer off of that. He didn't get fancy. He just stayed on his very narrow path, talking about the economy and talking about having Herschel Walker in the Senate would help in
0: that endeavor. Yep. and he didn't defend him from controversy. He didn't vouch for his personal issues. All that good stuff. Shaney B, what do we have next? Next is an
2: email from Kirk. He writes, I just listened to your podcast and the talk about Abrams and why she and other Democrats didn't perform well this year. One thing you didn't talk about is the Trump factor. I think that is the most important thing that has not really been discussed. Do you think dislike of Trump is the story of Georgia politics since 2018?
0: Such a good question, Kirk, because we've basically seen Democratic success track with Donald Trump's rise to power. In 2016, Donald Trump won the state. Democratic uh, candidate for U.S. Senate, Jim Barksdale, lost by convincing fashion. But at the same time, Democrats won Cobb County, they flipped Gwinnett County, they did better in the suburbs writ large. Add that to 2018 when Lucy McBath won the suburbs, won the U.S. House seat in in North Atlanta, and, of course, Stacey Abrams came within a whisker of beating Governor Kemp. And then in 2020, uh, when Trump was running for re-election and spouting all sorts of election fraud lies that might have depressed Republican turnout at the same time that Joe Biden won the state narrowly and John Ossoff and Senator Warnock one as well. So yeah, Trump played a factor in all of this. There's no, there's no way around that. He helped polarize a lot of swing voters away from Republicans. And these were once reliable Republican voters who tracked toward the Democrats, but also a big part of the equation, as we've talked about on this podcast before is Democrats had to kind of hold up their line of argument too, right? They had to play essentially error free ball, um, in 2020, in 2022, to win in such a divided state. So in 2020, that campaign strategy was tying themselves to Joe Biden, who at the time was a far more popular figure in Georgia. It was talking about authentic liberal issues like gun control, protecting uh, right to abortion access, LGBTQ rights, voting rights, all these issues that we've seen over and over again. And in 2022, that strategy changed to win in Georgia as a Democrat, Senator Warnock moved away from Joe Biden. He talked more about bipartisanship. He talked about working across party lines. So yes, in all those cases, they benefited from Trump being such a toxic candidate for so many voters. You know, Of course, he has a very core and reliable base of supporters too, who he helped energize. These are a lot of voters who didn't normally vote in presidential elections that he brought to the polls. At the same time, he was a very divisive figure for a lot of uh, swing voters, a lot of, of course, Democratic voters who he helped energize as well, but Democrats had to hold up their line of the bargain too.
1: Yes, so Donald Trump in politics is kind of like garlic, like you just always know he's there once once he was introduced (laughs) to the menu. you always either you like him or you don't like him, but he's always going to affect the outcome uh, no matter what. And I would even go back to, you know, one race you didn't mention, Greg, was uh, 2017 and John Ossoff, that special election up there in the 6th Congressional District. John Ossoff didn't win, but boy, did he have a huge turnout. And it's the first time, it was the first time I could remember in about 15 years that I went to a Democratic event and couldn't get a parking spot. There <laughs> was a... There was uh, people out canvassing for John Ossoff, and it was just this massive turnout. And frankly, these people didn't know who John Ossoff was. They just knew that they hated Donald Trump. Again, this is up in the 6th Congressional District up in Sandy Springs. Um, Hated Donald Trump, wanted to do something about it. And so even without really trying, Ossoff was able to activate and mobilize and harness all of that energy. And he came closer than any Democrat had in years and years and years in the sixth congressional district then really did tee up the next race for uh, Lucy McBath. Um, Then even in 2022, Donald Trump's not on the ballot. Donald Trump's candidates have almost all lost by November. But Donald Trump really did strengthen Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensberger In the most unexpected way, by attacking them, by forcing them to defend Georgia elections, by running primary candidates against them, and then making the message of the entire campaign of the primary, he wouldn't turn the election apparatus over to Donald Trump. I mean, that's a winning message. And Democrats are paying attention, by the way. So that made Kemp and Rappensberger both emerged from those primaries, uh, first of all, with huge wins, but also with independent brands that then became very attractive to crossover voters in November. So Trump continuing to have an influence even when he's nowhere near the ballot.
0: And I have a prediction. He'll continue to have an influence when he's on the ballot, presumably in 2024, as at least on the presidential primary ballot here in Georgia. So we are uh, we will not <laughs> we will continue to be talking about Donald Trump going forward. Shane B., what do we have for
2: our fourth question? Our fourth and final question for Listener Mailbag. We'll end this one with another phone call. This is a caller we've heard from before, and she has a message for Georgia voters. Hi, this is
1: Fran from Jersey. following up on my earlier call this election season. Just wanted to say thank you, Georgia, for electing the more competent and the more appropriate representative And I'll be happy to hear good things coming out of Georgia in the next few months. I'll keep listening. And thank you both for keeping us well informed. Fran from New Jersey. You said thank you to Georgia voters. We say thank you to you, Fran from New Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to this podcast. And I can't believe you've called not once, but twice. Um, it's great to hear from you, Fran. And I do believe Georgia voters are going to keep it interesting here. So stay tuned, Fran, and thanks for listening and thanks for calling.
0: Hey Amen. It just reminds us how, uh, how Georgia is not just a unique fascination to us Georgia voters, but also to a national audience. So Fran, thanks again for listening and for your vote of confidence for this show. Okay. Our last segment of the day who's up, and who's down. Let's start as we always do on who's down so we can end on a high note. And Patricia, my who's down for the week is me because this is, this is our last episode we're taping of Politically Georgia, unless there's a special one, of the year. Uh, we have a bunch of episodes that we taped um, ahead of schedule, end of the year type episodes, but we're all going on some much needed vacation over the next couple of days. Um, so I'm, but I'm down because it's bittersweet because I've so much enjoyed hanging out with you and producer Shaney B and producer Jay Black over the last year. So this is our final show.
1: Well, now I'm down too, Greg. <laughs> 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 okay, but I'm I'm going to bring company with me in my who's down, because who else is down are the teenagers of TikTok, because oh, yeah. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp on Thursday issued a statewide directive banning TikTok, WeChat, and Telegram from all state devices and networks. Also, the U.S. Senate has banned TikTok from all federal, or they're trying to anyway, from all federal systems and devices. That's going to need to go to a House vote. And it really, this is an issue I think that is picking up major steam and bipartisan steam that Senate bill passed unanimously. And there is a uh, really genuine concern that the government in China has access uh, just by the nature of how technology companies operate in China. The Chinese government has access to all of the data that the company has access to as well. And so it's become a pretty significant security concern um, domestically. And that could really change the way teenagers are capturing their dance
0: moves and sharing them with the (laughs) world. So so, I'm sorry, TikTok. Who's up, who's down. I love it. (laughs) And just to to give a little bit um, another dimension, this this ban also applies to colleges, universities who use these TikTok accounts to recruit students. Um, I did check in. I looked at the official guidance that are actually being sent out to the agencies, and it does give... Uh, these state departments and agencies and colleges and everyone else a chance of an exemption if they can show why they need it so presumably uga can keep its TikTok account to appeal to you know 17 and 18 year olds who are still using the social media app but georgia is far from alone in this Uh, you know georgia in a sense is almost not behind the curve but sort of in the middle of the curve because about a dozen other republican governors have already taken similar steps and as you said It's somewhat of a bipartisan issue because a unanimous decree by the U.S. Senate has also pushed for similar bans on federal devices. We'll see if that passes the House before the end of the year. Okay, but there's a time for our Who's Up for the week. And i love to say our Who's Up is our listeners who have been so loyal and devoted throughout this year as our audience has grown substantially. Uh, We have so much new, fun, good stuff coming for you next year. But we so appreciate all the loyalty, the comments, the feedback. It's hard to go anywhere outside of our offices uh, without hearing from you guys out there in the community about what this podcast means to you. It's so much fun for us to make each week. So who's up is you guys.
1: That is so sweet. You're such a brown nose. (laughs) But I totally agree. Our listeners are who's up in our minds. Shaney B is who's up, of course, as always. He's Um, always up. And my other who's up are Georgia voters. You guys voted time and time and time and time again. One election after another, uh, Georgia voters kept turning out and kept turning out in very large numbers, keeping the results interesting. I wrote a column today that's an ode to this uh, saucy bunch of Georgia voters who keep hogging the national spotlight three years in a row. And I do believe we will continue to get the national spotlight for a couple of years to come here at the very least.
0: Well, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast today and throughout the year. You can count our new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever news breaks. We'll see you soon on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
1: And I'm Ned Ravone, Mm -hmm. lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody.
0: It means everything to me. We wanna hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologeticallyATL.
1: Only from the Atlanta Journal Constitution.